solid biblical theological background, and and uh, he's uh, teaching the doctrines of grace. So for uh, safety and health, for uh, a connection with the pastors, uh, for his return trip through Amsterdam, and that they would uh, just see fruit and be encouraged in the ministry of God's Word while they're there. If you'll, uh, and we'll pray at the end for those things, but if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, and as you're opening your Bibles there, um, this is called the smart board. Now remember, the smart board makes smart men look smarter and dumb men look dumber, so we'll see what happens uh, tonight. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as you're turning your place there, uh, I want to remind the, the men that we have a men's conference this weekend. Jerome Bars, uh, professor at uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, will be our speaker. We start Friday morning with the men's breakfast. Bobby Green will be cooking. And uh, Car Kelsey's brother will be speaking that morning, Brian Kelsey, who uh, is in state politics, I believe. State House of Representatives. And we'll be talking about the merger of religion and politics uh, Christian politician is not an oxymoron. A large shrimp is, tight slacks are, but Christian politician isn't. So um, that's Friday morning at 6.30. Then Friday night, wonderful barbecue. Um, great speaker on sharing Christ in the workplace, and this will be a wonderful, wonderful weekend opportunity for, uh, for all of you guys. Um, if you haven't signed up, I believe we still might be able to squeeze you in. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this, of course, is called... Um, the love chapter, and it's called the love chapter for good reason. We're going to look at the context of that in just a moment. But um, I don't know. I, you know, I'd love to read the whole chapter. Um, in fact, let's just read the whole chapter. Uh, you'll be greatly encouraged to know, however, we're only going to look at the first three verses. So uh, just bear with me and let's follow the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. That is, it's not arrogant does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Um, in the mid-1950s, uh, 1950s, pardon me, the mid-1980s, while I was a student at Mid-America Baptist Seminary, I led a Bible study on Monday mornings uh, for about three years at a place called Lyndon Camilla Towers. Um, we met every Monday at 10 a.m., and one of the ladies, it's, uh, if you know anything about Lyndon Camilla Towers, 
It's principally a, a retire, if not exclusively, a retirement place, high-rise retirement living, but a very nice facility. One of the ladies in that Bible study uh, was Claudia Smart. And uh, Mrs. Smart was 98 years old. And she would sit across from me, uh, directly in front of me, and cup her ear and like a, like a radar, like a laser beam. Her eyes would focus on my lips so that she could hear what was being said. One Monday morning after the Bible study, she said, Could I speak to you privately for a minute? And I said, Certainly. What is it? And she said, I want to share with you there are three things in life that I really love. And I want to share them with you. And I said, what are they? She said, well, first of all, I really love Jesus. And she said, secondly, I love Jerry Lawler in Mid-South Wrestling. (laughs) And she said, the third thing is, I really love Pete Rose in Cincinnati Reds baseball. I said, well, Mrs. Smart, you certainly have your priorities balanced and in order. Jesus, Jerry Lawler, and Pete Rose. Um, That's quite a combination. In our English word, uh, our English word for love, we cannot make a distinction between loving Jesus, loving wrestling, and loving Cincinnati Reds baseball, but you automatically understand the distinction. Gentlemen, you understand the distinction between loving your favorite hunting dog and loving your wife, don't you? Of course you do. Um, But... Seriously, in the English language, we cannot make those subtle distinctions, but we instinctively know the difference between those kinds of love or those different degrees of love. However, in the the language in which the Scripture is written, the New Testament, that is, is written in the uh, the original language of the New Testament, they're not so limited. They're not so restrictive in in their use of the language. There are several words that are translated in our English text that um, are translated with our English word love. Now, let's see. Here we go. Uh, One of the words that's translated is this, uh, by the Greek language that we would translate in our text, would be the word eros. Eros. It is a word of desire and passion. It is intense in its feeling. We take this word... And, uh, and use other words in English that always have a sexual connotation. Eroticize, eroticism. Uh, it is a word that is strong in feeling, strong in emotion, and intense desire. It never appears in the Bible, however. Never appears in the New Testament. Uh, this is a word that is uh, predominant in our culture today. Uh, music, media of every kind, movies, commercials sitcoms, magazines, billboards. This is the dominant emphasis in our culture today is the idea of passion, desire, physical attraction. In, in the, the Greek pantheon of alleged deities, uh, Eros was the god of love, the word that we translate into, uh, into a, a meaning that has a sexual connotation. Um, the Roman equivalent in their pantheon of alleged deities was Cupid. We just celebrated Valentine's Day. $12.8 billion is spent on Valentine's Day and Valentine gifts. The, the predominant emphasis, however, in our culture is on this word. You remember a few years ago, probably more than a few now, Tina Turner, who's a native Tennessean, came out with the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? 
Anybody remember that song? What's love got to do with it? You must, here's the, the first verse. Uh, you must understand how the touch of your hand makes my pulse react. That it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl. Opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? Love is only a secondhand emotion. That is kind of the theme that would encapsulate this word eros. There's another word that's translated love, and uh, that's the word storge. Storge. Um, this word is not used by itself in the New Testament either, but this is the word of affection. It's natural affection. Um, in fact, it's the, it's the affection of, of, a, of a parent for a child, of parents for children. It's the affection that children have for their parents. In the King James Version, uh, Romans one thirty one says that, that as a culture, a society begins to deteriorate. And as God gives that culture and society over more and more to its hardness of heart and its depravity, Romans one thirty one puts um, an A in front of this, a little alpha privative, and, and it means, it's translated in the King James Version, without natural affection. Without natural affection. What does that mean? It means that as a culture declines and de- deteriorates, that what is perfectly natural and normal, a parent's love for their child or children, begins to be hardened. It begins to be diminished as more and more the culture gives itself over to depravity and to sin. We read some striking and startling accounts from time to time in the newspaper. We see it in the media reports of incredible child abuse, just heinous things, unimaginable things. And um, uh, when the Scripture puts this A in front of it, it takes away, it means to take away that natural affection. This is used in uh, Romans one thirty one. It's used in 2 Timothy 3, the same idea, without affection, natural affection. The other word that's translated is um, the word, this is an L, that's an I, philia, and it's the word of friendship. Anybody ever been to Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love? It's a compound of this. Um, Friendship or love, and then they put brotherly, Adelphos on there, it becomes the city of brotherly love. These two words, this is never in the Scripture, This is used in a negative way in the Scripture. This is used often in the Scripture for friendship, a common sharing together, the love of a friend, people who share a a common interest in one another and develop a context of community one for another. However, the other word that's used in the Scripture, and this is the one that you will recognize, is the word agape. And that's 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Throughout those 13 verses, Paul is giving the fullest commentary you'll find in the Scripture on this word agape. Now, let me back up just a minute. Does this mean that God is, because the Bible is silent and does not use this word, does this mean that, that the Scripture is opposed to the attraction, the chemistry, the desire that exists between a man and woman? Not at all. In fact, all you have to do is look at Genesis 
chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, when God made the woman, and he brought the woman to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in the garden, in the innocence devoid of sin, they were both naked and not ashamed. And a little bit later in Genesis 5, it says that Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, Seth. All you have to do is go back to God's original plan and purpose in Genesis 2 and realize that God is not opposed to this. Uh, all you have to do is read the Song of Solomon. A pastor friend of mine, when Melinda and I were in seminary together, spent, um, I, I don't know, I think 12, 13 weeks, whatever, on a Sunday night preaching through the Song of Solomon. And there was a baby boom that took place um, immediately after that. We don't need that kind of teaching here at Gracie Van. Um, and everybody said, amen to that. Um, so God's not opposed to this. But sin and our depravity takes something that God intends for blessing and it becomes twisted and misused and has self-serving ends and self-serving motivations. God is absolutely for the affection that exists between moms and their children. You know, when our, when our children were, were born, um, I did not get to hold the son immediately uh, for various reasons. One reason, I wasn't strong enough to hold him. He was 11 pounds, 7 ounces, and 24 inches long. Um, we said immediately, this boy, we're going to call him the caboose because that's it. He's the last in the train. Uh, but for various reasons, I did not get to hold him immediately. But our first child, a daughter, I did. I held her immediately. And I'm telling you, you know, I was not one of these guys that grew up uh, uh, particularly having strong feelings for kids or whatever. I knew they were there, but I just didn't feel warm and cuddly. But having a kid changed that. And when they put that baby in my arms, no one had to tell me to love this child. Now, at about two years of age and in the teen years, I've had to be reminded of that. But when they were first born, uh, no one has to tell you that. God is absolutely for these and blesses these in their right context and blesses the friendship. Thank God for friends and community sharing common interests together. But the characteristic word that the Bible uses to describe love 350 times in various forms in the New Testament is this word agape because it is the leading feature, the principal characteristic word of Christianity. And the best commentary on it is found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Scripture tells us in 1 John 4 that, that God is love. It's not a characteristic. It's not an attribute. It is the very being of God that, that effuses and is profusive in its love. It expresses itself in tender mercy and compassion. Uh, there's a kind of a strange reference. In, uh, it seems initially strange in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, God is the Savior of all men. That almost sounds like the heresy of universalism, that everybody's going to be saved. God's the Savior of all men. There's a little comma there, and then it says this, especially of those that believe. Especially of those that believe. How is God the Savior of all men? Because in His common grace goodness, He causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. In His common grace goodness, He sends the rain on the good and on the evil. In His common grace goodness, we've discovered 
a vaccination for polio. We have penicillin. In his common grace goodness today, Jim Turner, many of you will know Jim, had a heart catheterization, and they discovered another blockage. And in God's common grace goodness, we have things like stents now. They didn't have to do uh, open heart surgery. They were able to open the artery and restore blood flow to that portion of his heart. All of this is just God's love and kindness to mankind in general. But there's a sense in which God loves his people. There's a sense in which God's demonstrated that love in a profound way. He so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his son. But he especially pours out his love upon his people. This is, word is descriptive of God's attitude toward the son, uh, Christ himself. But this absolutely staggers me, folks. John 17.26, and I, I've quoted this in some form several times. God loves you. And he loves me as if we were Jesus himself. That's what John 17, 26 says. Jesus himself said that. It's this agape love. It's this outpouring of God's kindness, of his benevolence, of his compassion and his mercy. The perfect expression of this agape love among men was found in Christ. And I want you to listen to this very carefully. In our fallen culture, we've inverted this order. This would be the the leading characteristic of those who know and love Christ is to be the leading characteristic of the community of faith. And in man's fallenness, our depravity and ruin, we invert the order so that our culture says, no, this is preeminent, this is number one, this is what is to be emphasized. Whereas the Scripture says, Proverbs 31, 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord... She should be praised. Whereas we say in our culture that all the exterior qualities are the things that we find most commendable and that we pour so much energy and time and effort in. God takes this order and just reverses it. Because, listen, the kingdom of God is upside down and inside out to the values and the culture of a world that is marked and marred by sin and by depravity. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and you read through this chapter, you realize that this kind of love then doesn't run along with our feelings. Love is not principally, this love is not principally a feeling, it's a commitment. It's a a deliberate choice of the will. It's the set and inclination of a heart that has been rebirthed by the Spirit because this kind of love is foreign to us as spiritually dead people. We can't manufacture it. We can't muster it. We can't even counterfeit it for any length of time. But it is ours as a result of regeneration implanted in us by the spiritual rebirth of God's work of His Spirit in our hearts and our lives. You know, one of the leading litmus tests for being a follower of Christ Is this word agape? John writes in his first epistle in the third chapter, you know that you have passed from death to life because you love the brothers. Because you love the brothers. This agape word, this kind of love, has been poured poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Romans 5.5, it is the fruit, the effect, the product 
of God's Spirit in Galatians 5.22. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. And if anybody, if any group of believers, any congregation of believing people um, ever needed a fresh infusion of the love of God, it would have been this church at Corinth. If you know anything about it at all, it was a troubled bunch of people. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the uh, venerable godly pastor in the 1740s in New England in Northampton, in Massachusetts, called this love the life and soul of true religion. It's the sum of all virtue and duty in regards to God and people. And the people of God, the believers at Corinth, desperately needed a fresh infusion of it. Let me just give you... Uh, I'm going to come back and finish next week wherever I stop tonight. Um, and then the next Wednesday night, which will be uh, March the 8th, Dr. Young will be back. But let me just think through with you a minute, the, the church at Corinth. You may have never read 1 Corinthians, and so you don't realize what a troubled bunch of people it was. Or maybe you've read it and it's been some time ago. But let me tell you what characterized and marked this congregation. First of all, in chapter 1, they were marked by incredible division. Some of those people were saying, I follow Paul. And some of the people were saying, I follow Peter. And some of the people were saying, I follow Apollos. He's a great Bible teacher and he's so eloquent. And then some other folks were saying, I follow Christ. So they had four different people that they were following. And Paul says, I hear that there's divisions among you. And I believe it. I believe it. In chapter 3, they were acting like children. Not childlike, but childish, infantile in their behavior among the fellowship of God's people. In chapter 5, they had undisciplined sin in their midst. Sexual immorality. They even had a case there where a stepson was sexually involved with his stepmother. And the church did nothing about it. They let it go on. They didn't address it. In chapter 6, they had men that were sexually involved with prostitutes. In chapter 6, they had believers suing one another. It would be like Doug Zellner and I can't resolve our our issues. Um, And uh, so he gets a lawyer and I get a lawyer. And here we are both uh, in church on Sunday singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And yet we're squared off in a court of law at one another because we can't resolve our differences. And Paul says... What a shame that is. What a shame. They had problems with spiritual gifts in chapter 12, chapter 14. They had doctrinal problems in chapter 15. Some were even disbelieving and discounting the resurrection. So if anybody, any congregation, ever needed to be infused with the love of Christ, it would have been this church. What would the love of God have solved in that congregation? Well, first of all, Doug and I would have fired our lawyers and he would have taken me to a very expensive lunch and begged my forgiveness. And you know what? I'd forgive him. Immediately after the meal, I would have forgiven him. Um, It would have resolved the issue of spiritual gifts because the motivation for gifts is not personal prominence. It's not applause and public acclaim. It's to edify the body of Christ. One of the most unloving things you can do is not discipline, not discipline your kids or not practice discipline in the church context, just to ignore it. They would have stepped in and loved the brother and they would have disciplined. So they were in desperate need of the love of God. And in the opening verses here of this chapter, 
um, verses 1, 2, and 3. You, you could say, um, if you still have your Bibles open, look at 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one, where Paul is, is coming at the end of this chapter on spiritual gifts. It's corrective in nature. And in verse 31, he says, Earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is 1 Corinthians 13. This is the more excellent way. And here's what I want you to see. You, you could outline this chapter. I think there are about three paragraphs here. And you could say that in verses 1, 2, and 3, God's love is essential. Because this is God's love. It's not my love, not your love. We don't have it by nature. It's not programmed in. Um, this is God's love. And the first three verses would emphasize that God's love is absolutely essential in the context of the body of Christ. God's love is explained in verses 4 through 7, and God's love is exalted above everything else in verses 8 through 13. So let, let's just back up here just a second. and For just about five to seven minutes, look at the opening verses in verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul is saying in verse 1 that without God's love, our communication is ineffective, has no redemptive impact. And he says it in a very strong way. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It's, Paul is using religious exaggeration here. He's overstating the point, but, but if I could kind of paraphrase it, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if, if I was incredibly eloquent, if, if I could speak all kinds of languages, because the word tongues there... Um, I'm not going to erase. It, the word tongues there is G, is that showing up? G-L-O-S-S-A. And that's a long O. It's glossa, glossa. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues. This refers to languages. And so Paul is saying, though I had this incredible linguistic ability, and I was multilingual. And, and I was, was as, as eloquent as the angels of heaven. I had this incredible ability to communicate. But my communication was not motivated by the love of God. He says the impact of that is like being seated in front of the percussion section in an orchestra. And all you hear is the bang. It has a nerve-jangling sound that comes through because it is devoid of the proper motivation. It is devoid of the love of God. The communication is devoid of the love of God. And if you know something about the church at Corinth, they had a real issue with spiritual gifts. And, uh, and Paul's making an extreme point here. He's deliberately exaggerating the point. But he's saying that no amount of eloquence... No amount of speaking ability, unless it is baptized in the love of Christ, will ultimately have any kind of redemptive saving impact. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about words. Proverbs has a lot to say about words. One of the unique features of our humanity of being image bearers is the ability to speak, to articulate, to form words, to express our thoughts, to express our feelings and our emotions. Um, Proverbs 18 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. We can bless people or we can blister people. We can edify or build up people or we can cut them down. 
Uh, we can whittle them away just with a sarcastic comment. Um, and so Paul is saying in verse 1 that our communication, our ability to speak and to communicate is not what it ought to be in the body of Christ or in our lives individually or in our families unless it is saturated with the love of God. And then secondly, in verse 2, he goes on to say that without God's love, our contributions are incomplete. And again, it's, it's religious hyperbole. It's incredible exaggeration, but he's making a point here. He's saying that, that this incredible ability to be, to be insightful and discerning, spiritual illumination, the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, even though I'm spiritually astute, if my discernment is not motivated by love and the love of Christ, then in verse 2 he says, I am nothing. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for just a minute, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Uh, Paul says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge... Puffs up. Uh, the margin in my... I'm reading from the New King James Version. In the margin of my, my uh, Bible, it says that knowledge makes us arrogant. But love edifies. Love edifies. Knowledge without love makes us proud and arrogant, condescending, elitist, uh, aloof, cold, um, just accumulating facts and information is not motivated by the love of Christ. That's why the Scripture joins love and truth together. Love and truth. Speaking the truth in love. You know, you can speak the truth and, and you can just level somebody with the truth. You can KO them, knock them out with the truth. But if you cover that brick with the velvet of love, if you couch the truth, people know that you love them and care for them, then they can receive and accept the truth. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 13 then, Paul is, is saying that even with this incredible ability to understand knowledge and mysteries and so on, unless, unless it's compelled and constrained and motivated by love, then it's not personally profitable. And he goes on to mention the supernatural ability of faith without Love's motivation to move mountains, that is, to make what seems impossible, possible. He uses the strongest imaginable language. He says, without love, I am what? Nothing. I am nothing. And the word that's translated in our text for nothing means zero. Zilch. Nada. I am nothing if I'm not motivated and compelled and empowered by the love of God. And then very quickly, verse 3, he says, without God's love, even our charity, our benevolence is inadequate. And again, the exaggeration continues. And, uh, and it indicates that if, if somehow I could take all my worldly holdings and divide them into fragments so that I could give more people uh, more more contributions and distribute all my goods in a in a very benevolent, profuse fashion. If I'm not motivated by love, 
He says, it's not personally profitable to me then either. And even if I gave my body to be burned, that is, if I willingly followed Christ in martyrdom and my motives were wrong, then that's not profitable either. The point that Paul is making here, folks, is this, that the love of God is absolutely essential. And that's why the leading characteristic of Christ's disciples is what? It's love. I'm absolutely fascinated by this conversation that takes place in the upper room in John's Gospel, in John 13 through uh, verse 16. Um, Jesus is just hours from being betrayed, just hours from being beaten beyond recognition and going to the cross as the innocent, spotless Lamb of God as our substitute to bear the just condemnation and wrath of God. And in John chapter 13, he says to his disciples that the world, that is the unbelievers, will know that you're my disciples by your what? Anybody know? By your love. They'll know you're my disciples not because of your knowledge, not because of all these gifts and abilities. They'll know that you're my followers, that you're my disciples because you love one another. Because you care for one another. And it's this word, agape. Because elsewhere the Bible will tell us this. That that love empowers our obedience to God. Um, We show our love for God by our obedience. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Um, Love is demonstrated. Love for God is demonstrated in simple obedience. Love is the compelling motivation for living the Christian life. Uh, Not some legalistic, not some religious treadmill, but because my heart is responsive to all that God has done for me and promised to be for me in Christ. Love gives purpose. You know, we're told not to love money, not because money's bad. Uh, I've been without money, and that's not good. Uh, It's not that money's bad. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's just that our love is set up on the wrong ends and the wrong object. So this, these opening verses here give a context, a flavor, if you will, of why love is so essential in the Christian life. And it's not as if the Bible would tell us, um, you know, to have, have love and then not supply it. It's not as if God commands us to fly and then doesn't give us wings. He does give us wings because He calls us to love one another and He calls us to love God. And then he says, and here's what I'm going to do to enable you to do that. I'm going to take out your cold, dead, stony heart. And I'm going to give you a heart of feeling and a heart of compassion and a heart that's responsive to me and a heart that's responsive to other people. And then he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon that new heart. And when the spirit of God comes in, my love will come in with him so he says love is the more excellent way and it really is because loveless gifts will not edify and will not build up the body of christ what does love have to do with it everything in the kingdom of god it has everything to do with it in the kingdom of god let's pause here and we'll pray Uh, father um 
we thank you for so great a love that you've poured out upon us in Christ and so great a salvation that you would take fallen and flawed people and uh, and basically do a heart transplant, that you would give us a, a softened, feeling, compliant, responsive heart. And, and we pray that your um, love would be freshly poured out in us and upon us and manifest itself through us. We also pray this evening in closing for our pastor, for Dr. Young and for Jim Umloff and for Ben Clark and are grateful that though we're separated by a vast difference and several time zones and um, uh, immense cultural uh, differences, uh, that your arm is not short and your ear is not deaf. But as we pray here, you're able to encourage and strengthen and sustain these dear brothers. And we do pray for their physical safety and preservation. We pray that they would be inwardly renewed uh, each day that they're there, that they would re- uh, receive fresh spiritual strength, a fresh infilling of your spirit. And um, as uh, Dr. Young has requested, we pray that they might be able to establish meaningful connections there with those pastors and that the Word of God would bear incredible fruit in the lives of those men and then in the lives of the people to whom you will send them in ministry. Uh, we pray, Father, that um, all things would be done to the praise of your glory and for the good of the people who are called by your name. We commit our lives, our homes, our families are fresh to you tonight knowing there's no safer place to be than in your hands. For all this we pray with thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.